Welcome back to Over the Top, a Great War podcast. All right, folks, this is episode 37, and I'm going to be covering the British and French at Hellas for the First and Second Battle of Krithia. Some historians believe that Hellas was where the real battle for Gallipoli lied. And in a nutshell, they're not wrong. Remember, the British landings at Hellas was meant to be the main attacking force with the French and the Anzacs supporting them moving up. But by no means does that translate to the British having it worse than the Anzacs. That, in my opinion, would be false, because everyone had it really bad. On the last episode, I talked about the fierce battles between the Turks and the Anzacs and how, through all the fighting from April 25th up through summer, led to one thing. That one thing was... nowhere. It only led to more bloodshed. And both sides realized it was damn near impossible to break through the opposing lines. They did develop more elaborate trench systems to include communication lines, and they also introduced tunnelers into this campaign. If they couldn't break through the line above the ground, they were going to try and break through beneath the enemy. And now, it's time for the Brits and the French to take the stage. Actually, before I get into that, let me tell you what I'm drinking for this episode. And... I was going to drink a real drink. I was going to make myself a nice cocktail, but two days ago, I I had a kidney stone that passed through my kidneys. Now I'm just waiting to pass it. So my dear wife went and bought me some fancy hydrating, whatever that means, water. I don't. It's, it's some fancy water that's supposed to keep you hydrated more than regular water. So for this episode, I'm... Staying hydrated and drinking my water, which is probably for the best. And, uh, tastes like water. All right, enough of that. Let's see, I get this thing started. The British and French military history is a long one. That's a whole different podcast on its own, which can go on for a very long time. They've been in a lot of conflicts leading up to 1914. Their courage, their esprit de corps is never in question. Point being, both France and Great Britain know how to fight. You might be wondering then, why did the Turks, a, let's be honest, not so much of a powerhouse military, give them such hell? This all really comes down to turn of the century warfare. This style of military fighting is new to everyone, and the army, in this case with knowledge of the terrain, will have the upper hand. This isn't like the Western Front, where you have two opposing military mites basically on somewhat flat ground going head to head. Yeah, I know there's hills and high grounds, but the terrain features are much more treacherous at the Dardanelles than the Western Front. But it's the Turks' knowledge of the land and the indecisiveness of the British commanders, which gave the Turks the opportunity to put up such a brutal fight against such a military power. The W and V beach landings along the southern Hellas Point was a bloodbath to say the least. Remember at V Beach, this is where the troops came pouring out of the River Clyde like the Trojan horse, except these soldiers didn't sneak out of the belly of the beast and slay down the enemy. No, they were greeted by a welcoming party with a wall of bullets. And despite all the losses, 
by the end of the day on the 25th of April, it wasn't a complete loss. They did manage to capture Hill 141 after the men regrouped and reorganized themselves. And they did have people on the shore. No move after the landings was going to take place until the French 1st Brigade Metropolitan arrived on the 26th. A man whose real name was Dick Cooper enlisted into the French Foreign Legion under the name Cornelius Jean de Bruin described what it was like after arriving to Hellas, saying, Very soon, the Turks started shelling from Fort Chinook. It was my first experience of shellfire, and I did not like it very much. We started marching right away. There was no camping. That night we rested on a hilltop. We had no idea where the enemy was. It was pitch dark and raining in torrents. The first company was lost, and Captain Rousseau detailed me with four or five men to go out in different directions to find them. I walked for about a half an hour through the rain and darkness, stumbling over rocks and dead bodies, and, at last, scrambling up a hill, I saw a dim silhouette at the top. I was glad to see any living human being and went right up to him and spoke French. With a yell, the man dropped his rifle and fled, calling on, Allah in Turkish. The best part of it, I was so startled that I did the same thing. That is, I dropped my rifle and ran. Private Cornelius Jean de Bruin, Légion Étrangère, First Regiment de Marche d'Afrique. End quote. Now, dropping his rifle isn't cool. In fact, it's not in the Legionnaire fighting spirit to do such a thing. And I hope somebody made him push the earth until his arms gave out. But you do have to appreciate the story for not being a bloodshed. Rather, it was a funny story for the time. I'm sure there's plenty of rumors and stories about what people did to get into the Foreign Legion. I know they have a reputation for taking anyone with any criminal past. That's actually not true. They do have standards and a selection process. Yes, you can have a past, but you can't be a murderer or some sex offender. As far as I know, there's only one way to get in. You show up in France and you knock on the door. There's no application online, nothing you mail in, no recruitment, nobody seeks you out, no invitation. You seek them out and knock on the door. Either they take you or they reject you. And they take people from all over the world and after your service is completed, which I believe is five years, I think you get French citizenship. Not sure about that, but I think so. A lot of men run from their past and join the Legion to start a new life. I've seen American men interviewed saying they were denied by the American military for a criminal past, so they went to the Foreign Legion. And honestly, I don't think it's really a bad idea. In fact, it's a good way to get citizenship and a second chance on life. But that's just my opinion. And the Legion are fighting men. They deploy all around the world and they do get their hands dirty. Anywho, Hunter Weston, the big cheese in charge of the British, the commander of the 29th, planned for attacks to resume on the 28th. He knew Akibaba to the north was out of reach, so he planned for the men to move forward to Krithia and to have the right flank at Hill 236 near S Beach manned by the French. The first Battle of Krithia kicked off at 0800 hours on the 28th of April. 
and problems started quick. The French were supposed to hold their position at Hill 236. Instead, they felt it was better to push them forward towards Carivas-Dier Ravine to deal with the Turkish defensive positions there. These defensive positions would have the opportunity to enfilade the main advancement to their left unless dealt with, but the attack failed. Problems kept piling on for the Tommies. There was a breakdown in communication, of course. They didn't time the French advancement properly. The British didn't start their advancement until 1000 hours, which just left them open to fire, not to mention three goalies that stood in their way, goalie Ravine, Krithianola, and Akibaba Nola. And if you don't know, Anola is a dry river bed or ravine. Since the whole thing kicked off and quickly turned into a soup sandwich, the advancement came to a halt. But the Turks were also feeling a lot of weight on their shoulders. They too were exhausted since the landings on the 25th. It's not like they fought the British escaping with a clean bill of health. They too took many casualties and the reinforcements had to move up to support what was left. At one point, they did consider a retreat. Major Mahmoud from the Turkish 5th Army later said, The regimental commander gave an order that withdrawal should take place at Sogon Lidier. But upon this, I replied that we should gain time and that the slopes of Akibaba were important. And Mahmoud was right. Akibaba was a strategic position. So hold their position they did with reinforcements from the 19th and 7th Division finally arriving. As this offensive by the British and French were taking place, there was a tremendous amount of shooting and moving going on. It was a very chaotic scene. There was confusion among the men. They didn't exactly have a pinpoint on the Turkish defensive positions, so as they were being fired upon, they would suddenly realize, oh, there's the enemy. Casualties were falling everywhere. By the time the commanders halted the advancement, the British had suffered an estimated 2,000 casualties and the French 1,000. For one day, that short period of time, that's a lot of casualties. By the end of April, the Turks were building up their fighting power. They poured in the reserves and massed a force of 17,000 men at Hellas. Again, with the knowledge of the terrain and now a massed fighting force, on paper, they had the upper hand. And this would have been a perfect time for the Turks to make an advancement on the Allies. And they will, but with warning. German General Otto Lehmann von Sanders explained to the Turkish commanders that if you move the men during the day, this would make them vulnerable to British naval gunfire supporting the operations. They would have to make their attacks during the evening hours where there would be nothing the Navy could do. If you can't see them, then there's nothing to shoot at. And the Navy wasn't going to fire randomly because more than likely they would also start taking out their own men. And also, the Navy isn't just lounging around on the decks of these ships. They may not be in the trenches like the men on the ground, but they're on their toes. Turkish artillery is constantly firing on these ships that are anchored in the bay. And rounds are hitting the ship. People are dying from this. I just wanted to point out that it's not only the men on the ground who are at risk. 
In fact, I want to read a couple letters that the French doctor Joseph Vassal wrote to his English wife at the end of April. The French Pailloux had already been on the ground, but it wasn't until the end of April he made his way onto the beach. Vassal wrote the following. April 29th, 1915. My dearest wife, we had been waiting to go ashore on the European side since 11 o'clock last night. We passed the Cornwallis, which was bombarding over our heads. Crithia was in flames. Columns of smoke kilometers long hid the sky on one side. We approached a small boat, which is made up against what the Tommies call the Horse of Troy. This is the River Clyde of Glasgow, which was run ashore to make a landing stage. I cross the Horse of Troy, and I step on the sacred Turkish soil. Digging has begun on, on our left, where the English are sleeping. A great deal of movement, many troops, tents, horses, artillery. Human detritus of every kind. The Chateau de Europe is in ruins. An enemy airplane has just dropped four or five bombs on the camp. We return to the Savoy. Crithia is burning. Shells from Entepe are falling near the camp of the 4th Colonial. April 30th. Marmites are falling on the French camp at Setobar. Yesterday, Aviatiques directed the enemy's fire. We can see them burst in the midst of this medley of men and material. They are coming from Entepe. The ships try to silence them. Cornwallis, Jalgubieri, Henry IV. An exciting duel, magnificent light. At 10.30, an aeroplane of ours arrives. At last, Entepe continues to fire. At one o'clock, the Henry IV, which was at 1,000 yards to our left, changes her anchorage and passes between us and the Nyanashir coast. We can see that she has been hit. At two o'clock, we hear that she has been hit six times by the Entepe batteries. One shell fell on the bridge. The captain and six officers were wounded. In all, there are two dead and 12 wounded. At 2.30, we received our orders to go ashore. At 3, we left the Savoy. We said goodbye to the Captain Tourette. Half an hour later, we were in the much-bombarded Settel Bar Bay. Work is going on steadily. There are a great many troops, much material, and a field hospital. I photograph one of the holes made by a Marmite. I visit the director of the Service de Santé. Houses are burst open. Many are in atoms. There is not a corner that has escaped shells and bullets. We find, however, a little orchard intact. There are already five or six tents there. A cemetery is destroyed, also a mosque close to it. After having established the dressing station, I go to bed. It is very cold. An enormous red moon rises above Mordo Bay. For a time, all is quiet, and a night bird begins to sing. Then. Suddenly, shouts from all sides. Fire! Fire! Rapid fire! For as there is not yet a telephone, orders must be passed from mouth to mouth. This death clamor is terrifying. The 75 obeys. It is a group of Turks who are flying, and the 75 mows them down as they go. I am awakened many times in the night by this rapid fire of the 75. All night, Fusillade attacks, 
counterattacks at some 100 meters from us. We all kept calm. An interesting perspective from Joseph Vassal. And his letters to his wife go on and on. I'll quote Vassal more as I go. On May 1st, at 2200 hours, the Turks began their assault on the Allies after increasing the size of their fighting force with reserves. A British soldier described it saying, They crept right up to our trenches. They were in thousands, and they made the night hideous with yells and shouting, Allah! Allah! We could not help mowing them down. Some of them broke through a part of our line, but they never again got back as they were caught between the two lines of trenches. Some of the best men in the regiment were killed. When the Turks got close, the devils used hand grenades, and you could only recognize our dead by their identity discs. My God, what a sight met us when the day broke this morning. The whole ground in front of us was littered with dead Turks. To my left, where the attack was the strongest, I think there were at least 500, and there is no chance of burying them as anybody who shows themselves outside is bound to be brought down by one of their snipers. Sergeant Dennis Moriarty, 1st Royal Munster Fusilers, 29th Division. End quote. Another British soldier said the following, My regiment alone got through 150,000 rounds, and they were only 360 strong. The Turks were simply driven to the barbed wire in front of the trenches by their German officers and shot down by the score. At one point, they actually got into the trenches, but they were driven out by the bayonet. They must have lost thousands. The fighting is of the most desperate kind. Very little quarter on either side. The men are absolutely mad to get at them as they mutilate our wounded when they catch them. For the first three nights, I did not have a wink of sleep and actually fell asleep once during the big night attack. Lieutenant Henry O'Hara, 1st Royal Dublin Fusilers, 29th Division. End quote. It was rumored and put into writing for years after the war that German officers were present during these attacks. However, historians have argued this, saying the German officer presence at Gallipoli wasn't a high number, and most, if not all, were very high-ranking officers, and that they don't believe such a high-ranking German officer would have put themselves at risk during such attacks. They were valued by the Turkish commanders, so the Turks probably wouldn't have allowed it either. As I've stated before, I've, I've read a few books about the Dardanelles, and one of these books is called The Struggle for the Dardanelles, the memoirs of a German staff officer in Ottoman service. The officer's name was Major Eric Prigg. It wasn't the best book I've read about Gallipoli, but in the book's defense, I did pick and choose what to read based off dates. In this case, I was looking at April 25th and forward. I didn't really ever get a sense that he was on the front lines with the Turks. When he wrote his memoir, it was always they and not us or we together. I'm sure he witnessed a lot, but probably from a distance away. I would agree with the historians that have argued this. It, it wouldn't make sense to put these officers on the front lines. They really were an asset to the Turkish military. And I'm definitely not calling any British veteran a fibber. I do believe that in their minds... 
they believe they seen German officers, but in reality, it was probably just a well-dressed Turkish officer. As ridiculous as that sounds, that's the most logical explanation, was the uniforms. And really, to be honest, I don't think they really cared at the time of the attacks. They just seen an officer, and they knew the Turks were attacking with immense hostility. And understand this, by this time, because the Turks had increased their headcount, it gave the exhausted soldiers time to recover. Always helps during a fight. The Allies didn't so much have this opportunity. Well, they did have the colonial troops, but check this out. I'm talking about the colonial troops arriving as reinforcements. Think about the setting. It's dark. The colonial soldiers had barely come ashore and put themselves between the French and the British. <laughs> and all of a sudden, the Turks come hailing down on them in mass, yelling, Allah, Allah. Well, the colonial troops turned to each other and said, F this, I'm gone. And many of them just ran off into the darkness. And I'm sure many of them were killed. So the Allies still haven't got any sort of relief up to this point. They're mentally and physically exhausted, yet they're still managing to put up a fight. And as humorous as it is now hearing about those men just kind of hightailing it out of Dodge, I'm sure for the British and French on the ground at that time, it wasn't very funny. The fact is, this gave the Turkish an opportunity to make a massive assault forward, and that they did. Some got as far as Mordo Bay. That's the bay between S and V Beach. And some Turks got close to Sed El Bear. That's darn near right on V Beach. A French lieutenant encamped at Sed El Bar, who was still waiting for his team's 150mm gun to be brought in place, described the situation saying, Fanatical Turks, good brave soldiers, were killed without mercy by our bayonets in the hand-to-hand -hand struggle. In the course of the night, they broke through almost to the cypress trees not far from our village. We could hear their shouts, their joyful cries, and the certain belief that they were close to victory. We retreated, forced back by their savage efforts and heavy sacrifice of human lives, to cover the area of ground in front of us and above the cypresses, and to give the Turks the impression that the hill was occupied, I fired volleys of rifle fire. Nonetheless, the Senegalese were overwhelmed and fell back in disorder. To show their advance so that their artillery could fire in support, the Turks lit red flares. Green flares marked out the trenches that they had recaptured, and they also had white flares, which they lit to illuminate our defeat. Hopeful that at any moment, if their all-powerful Allah so wished, we could be thrown without mercy into the sea. The night passed in an agonized anxiety as to the outcome of hand-to-hand -hand fighting in which every life is in doubt. Dawn came at last, lighting up a scene of carnage and the Turks retired to their trenches accompanied by salvos of 75mm shells. We have held the line, but the dead and wounded are legion. Lieutenant Henry Fiel, 52nd Battery, 30th Regiment, end quote. This again goes back when I earlier talked about the British and French military being a mighty force. Outnumbered, 
outgunned, mentally and physically exhausted, yet they reached deep down inside, pulled some intestinal fortitude out, and held the Turks back. That's what separates a mighty military force from the rest. It's not the size of the dog, it's the size of the fight in the dog. Help finally did arrive for the Allies in the form of daylight. Daylight meant that the naval ships could see the Turks and were able to help the men out. Gun teams on the HMS Vengeance could see the French getting pushed back, but more importantly, they could now see the Turks who appeared in the open. The gunners laid into the Turks with heavy, devastating firepower. And whenever you have a group of soldiers bundled up and naval and artillery rounds start dropping in on them, naturally you get a bloody mess. Bodies being ripped apart, thrown into the air everywhere. The French counterattacked on the morning of May 2nd, gaining the ground that was lost. The Turks would retreat behind hills and would again try to attack. The guns from the ship just continue to rip them apart. This is exactly what General Lehman von Sanders said would happen with attacks in the daylight hours. His warning was, if you show yourself in the daylight hours, the guns will tear you apart. Straightforward and very accurate. Little side trip on some history about Otto Lehman von Sanders. Born in 1855 in the Kingdom of Prussia, his ancestry from his father's side is believed to have been Jewish, his original name being Liebmann but he was later baptized as a Christian. He was a well-educated military man who entered into service in 1874. In 1885, he was promoted to Oberleutnant and then again promoted in 1889 to Hauptmann and continued to work his way up the ranks, making Generalleutnant in 1911. Later, in 1915, he'll be sent to the Mesopotamian Front after leaving the Dardanelles, during the last year of the Great War, he took over command of the Ottoman Empire. The Ottomans and von Sanders were eventually defeated by the British in the Sinai and Palestine campaign. After the war in 1919, von Sanders was arrested by the British authorities for the sanctioning of Greek and Armenian massacres. He was held in Malta for a half a year and then released. After being released, he returned to Germany. In 1927, he published his memoir that he had written while being held in Malta, which was called Five Years in Turkey. He died in Munich on the 22nd of August, 1929, at the age of 74. And that's a little history off the beaten path on Otto Lehmann von Sanders. So, the Allies did gain the ground that was lost the previous day because of the much-needed support from the big guns. But when you think about it, they were really just right back where they started and no real gains were actually made. It was kind of like being thrown back into the starting line of a race after you've been running for a whole day. It's not making any gains. You're literally just right back where you started. On the night of May 3rd, the Turks launched another attack. But by this time, the French had their 75mm cannons in place, ready to play their part in this game of death. They unleashed hell on the Turks, but 
the Turkish artillery from the Asiatic coast was now responding with theirs. It was like a dueling banjos, but with artillery. The guns continuously fired all through the night until the early morning hours. In fact, to get a sense of how much they fired, some guns by the morning had zero shells left to fire. They had expended through all their rounds. As light shined upon the battle zone that morning, the damage became evident. Men from both sides were torn apart. And as always, I speak about the dead. I again ask you to imagine all the dead that have piled up in this area since the landings on the 25th of April. And with the daylight, again, came the rain of fire from the ships. So day and night, the bombardment kept going. Vaughn Sanders later wrote saying, in each case, daybreak brought an overwhelming fire from the ships, which compelled the Turks to withdraw to their positions. Only a part of the capture machine guns could be carried off. Painful as it was for me, I now had to give orders to abstain from further attacks on the Sedel Bar front and to remain on the defensive. But not an inch of ground was to be yielded as the enemy was not far from Akibaba Ridge, his next great objective. I ordered the Turkish troops of the first line to entrench themselves as close to the enemy as possible. A distance of a few paces between the hostile lines would inhibit the fire from the ships, which would now equally endanger the troops both sides. End quote. If you were a Turkish soldier, this probably wasn't what your ears wanted to hear. To dig your way right up to the enemy as close as you can. But this was a smart move on Von Sanders' part. He knew, with both sides being that close together, the ships wouldn't fire on them for fear of killing their own. A good defensive move, well played by Von Sanders. And just like a chess game, players will often make good moves back to back. Well, Lehman made another good move. He brought in a party of German Maxim machine gunners from the Goldman to join the fight. In an area the size of Hellas, which wasn't that big, this was a bad situation for the Allies. And since the Turkish night attacks had been failing, Lehman decided it would be best to hold the line they occupied in front of Krithia. And that sort of closed the book on the first battle of Krithia that began on the 28th of April. And here's a summary of what is going on at this time. The situation at Hellas wasn't good for the Allies, and now that von Sanders had halted in place, bringing up more reinforcements to include the German machine gunners, this made things a lot worse. There's two forces of nature at play here. Von Sanders' men holding their line gave the opportunity to recover and gain their strength and size with more reinforcements coming in. And Sir Ian Hamilton and Hunter Weston knew the longer between the attacks, the more strengthened the Turks would become. So they were forced into rushing their men into attacks with no recovery time. Those opposing forces are coming head to head. And honestly, I don't blame Hamilton and Weston for that thought process. It was true. The longer the men sat around, the more opportunity it gave the Turks to bring men up and fortify their defensive positions. And the more long they sat around, the more well-rested they became. 
But there was a problem. The Allies couldn't advance without more reinforcements. It was not going to happen. So they were forced to halt for a few days until reinforcements arrived. And the Turks took advantage of this. The French 2nd Division was on the way, but not expected until the 6th of May. The 29th Indian Brigade in Egypt was called up, as well as the 42nd Division. But the 42nd was made up of inexperienced men, which the majority of them had joined up after the outbreak of war and had no experience. Hamilton also thought it would be a good idea to move the New Zealand Brigade and the 2nd Australian Brigade down to Hellas, since it appeared Anzac Cove was stabilizing which we know wasn't true, but he moved them anyways. Hamilton and Hunter Weston assembled this force to launch the second Battle of Carithia on May 6th. And again, I can understand the fact that the longer they waited, the worse the situation would become. So rushing the next attack is what needed to happen. Actually, what needed to happen is not what happened. And that would have been for some leaders to reassess this whole plan and realized it was a debacle, but that didn't happen, so onward they went. The plan was again to have the French attack and capture Carivas d'Air Ravine. They would act as a pivot as the British would swing around and take Carithia and Yazatepe before heading onto Akibaba. Same song and dance titled Shit Show that we've seen before. Again, the success of the British all laid in the hands of the French if they succeeded. A heavy bombardment from naval gunfire and artillery began at 1000 hours. The bombardment did some damage naturally, but nothing that would change the game. Problem is the guns couldn't see the Turks so this would result in the infantry having to make direct contact with the Turks on the ground. The French troops set out climbing along spurs that separated them between the enemy. They now found themselves in no man's land, a place you did not want to be. The situation became chaotic as the men ran to the left and right, now separating themselves, just to find safety from the wall of lead coming at them. The Turkish machine guns, well, German machine guns really, were tearing the men apart. It was becoming a slaughterhouse as the men were being pushed through the meat grinder. Miraculously, somehow, some of the French soldiers actually made it to their destination. And as the bullets were coming at them from all directions, the men desperately grabbed their entrenching tool and began to dig just enough to provide them with some safety. And just about this time, when these men were starting to dig, the British began their assault forward but it was a complete failure as the men were immediately confused of the whereabouts of the Turkish positions. It really just resulted in more casualties, more death, and zero gains. And because there was that thing, the more time we sit around, the stronger they become. Hunter Weston orders the same plan of attack on May 7th, which turned over the same exact results, just adding more blood to the soil. It's like you're at a restaurant and you get a crappy meal. You send it back, ask for something else, but you get another crappy meal and so on. Same crappy meal, just on a different plate. 
eventually anybody with any sense would just stop, get up and leave because they know this place serves crap. It just amazes me that no commander like Hamilton or Hunter Weston couldn't realize that they were being served the same crappy response with every attack after the landings. They're just killing off their men like they were expendable. Retreating was not an option to them at this point. Now, also at this time, the French were creeping closer to Crevice de Ravine. And the closer they got, the more terrifying it became because this was a ravine and a very well-defended ravine, which the men knew any movement forward was basically where they would rest eternally. Again, Hamilton and Hunter Weston had to make a decision. Do we accept this defeat and regroup, which would give the Turks time to fortify their defensive positions, or do we go for a third round? They, they took the third round. The third attack kicked off on May 8th, but this time they said, let's bring up the Kiwis. The New Zealand Brigade had been moved into position early that morning. By 10.30 hours, they had come in line with the British and began their attack. A Kiwi described the situation, saying, For 200 yards we sprinted, thinking oddly how beautiful the poppies and daisies were. Then, from sheer exhaustion, we rushed to ground in a slight depression and lay there panting. Now the storm was let loose and increased every moment in fury until a splashing, spurting shower of lead was falling like rain on a pond. Hugging the ground in frantic terror, we began to dig blindly with our puny entrenching tools, but soon the four men nearest me were lying, one dead, two with broken legs, and the other one badly wounded in the shoulder. A sledgehammer blow on the foot made me turn with a feeling of positive relief that I had met my fate, but it was a mere graze and hardly bled. Another bullet passed through my coat, and a third ripped along two feet of my rifle sling. Then, the wounded man on my right got a bullet through the head, and that ended his troubles. And still, without remission, the air was full of hissing bullets and screaming shells. Private Cecil Malthus, Canterbury Battalion, New Zealand Brigade. End quote. Hamilton ordered an all-out advancement that afternoon at 17.30 hours, but it was useless. If it was impossible for the majority of the men to even move, and those who did were just gunned down. The Kiwis' advance failed. They dug in place just for safety, not because they made any sort of gains. The Austri Australian 2nd Brigade was brought in, and they too suffered appalling losses with no real gains made. They should have moved in the cover of darkness. That would have been the only thing that could have saved them up to this point. This brought an end to the Second Battle of Krithia. The Third Battle of Krithia kicked off in June, and I'll cover that in part two. And that's going to be it for this episode, folks. I hope you've enjoyed it, along with all the other previous episodes. This uh, episode's World War I recommendation is going to be a little something different. I don't know what you guys do to entertain yourselves when you guys watch TV. I personally... For me in the United States, they have cable TV and it sucks. There's never anything on that I like. So my go-to usually has been YouTube. Um, I also go to Shudder, but that's, that's nothing to do with history. That's just because I like horror movies. 
But uh, I found this really cool app that's been promoted. It's called History Hit. And um, again, I, you know this show. I don't make any money off of it. I have no sponsors. I'm only relaying something that I when I relay stuff when I think it's cool. And uh, this this app's pretty cool. If you're a history fan, which I'm sure you are if you listen to this podcast, I think you might enjoy it. So go check out History Hit. Uh, they got documentary histories on World War One, World War Two. They got history documentaries on everything. It's just a really great channel, and I love sitting down and watching them. So I thought I'd pass that along to you listeners. Um, I know there's some history buffs out there, and I think you'll enjoy it. So give it a chance. All right, folks. Thank you for your continued support. You fans are the best. And until the next episode, take care, everyone.